I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10. And I'd like to read with you verses 19 through 25. Since therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, And since we have a great high priest or a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this passage and pray that as we talk about it tonight that we might be encouraged and and, uh, moved in our heart to think about our relationship to each other as a church, as individuals in the church, and how we ought to respond to one another. And uh, pray that the Spirit of God would be active tonight as we study together in Christ's name. Amen. I think a lot of times about my own Christianity and much of it really is a personal thing, really. When it comes down to it, all of us are saved And we know that in our own hearts. We have devotions. We read the word of God by ourselves. We listen to people preach. We read books. And and we grow. We grow personally. And and much of our faith, as it were, is an individual thing between me and God, between you and God. A lot of our preaching is aimed at personal sanctification, what we ought to do how we ought to change in our lives personally. And this is true. There is a very private part, I guess, to our faith and our our Christianity. But I'd like to propose that salvation itself and the fact that God took you from where you were and brought you to where you are now, he, he never intended for us to just live out our days once we're saved by ourselves, to somehow corner ourselves in our houses or, or stay away from, from people. But he intended from, from the very beginning, as he saved us, to bring us into a body, to bring us into a family, into a group of people. We know it as the church, to whom we would belong and to whom would belong to us. We're a part of each other by virtue of the fact that I am in the body of Christ and that you are in the body of Christ, we're in the same body. And because of that, we're a part of each other. Our lives intersect. Our thoughts intersect. We have opportunities to be with each other and and to exercise that faith together. Uh, There are illustrations from the book of Acts 
There are pictures given in the New Testament of the church as a body, as a household, as a building, as a temple. Um, There are direct commands given to the church that use one another terminology. We've covered some of this before. And it all points to the fact that our lives really ought to be lived. And I guess tonight I want us to think about our own, how do we think about it as an individual? Our lives are to be lived out together, not simply individually. And the passage tonight, we're going to just take a kind of bird's eye view and and walk through it. We're not going to get too, too deep. Um, even Even as you take a cursory glance at this and we read it, notice all of the plural um, pronouns that are in here. In verse 19, he uses the word brethren and we. He's not talking to a single person, but a group. And he includes himself in that group. We have confidence. In verse 21, uh, for us, plural, through the veil. Um, verse 21, oh, that was verse 20, sorry. Verse 21, since we have a great high priest. Verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart, having our hearts sprinkled clean and our bodies, plural, washed. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. Verse 25, our own assembly. And the whole passage is plural. It's not meant for one single individual, but for us to consider as a group together And what I'd like us to consider tonight is the responsibility that we have as an individual to the group. What what does God expect of me to do with you? What does God expect of you to do in my life? And this passage has quite a bit to say about that, and I'd like to go through it with you tonight. There's really two parts to the passage. Uh, The first part begins with the word since in verse 19. Since, therefore, brethren, and he repeats it in verse 21, and since we have, and the second part is starting in verse 22, therefore let us. The therefore I inserted, but it's there. Since this is true, therefore let this happen. And so we're going to look at the two parts of it tonight to look at what the since is and then to look at what the the therefore It follows that part should be. So in verses 19 through 21, we have the part that God has done in in saving us. Since, therefore, brethren, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God. What has God done? in saving us. He's made you and I brothers and sisters in the same family. He's given us confidence to enter his presence. Since therefore, brethren, he's made you my brother or my sister, as the case may be, and he's put us together in the same family. And he's given us together confidence to come into the presence of God. We have confidence to enter the holy place which is a reference to the temple in the Old Testament where only the Shekinah glory dwelt and only the high priest was allowed in once a year, the very presence of God. We now have confidence to enter into his presence through Christ by the blood of Jesus. 
we have that confidence to enter into the presence of God, how? How do we do it? Prayer, absolutely. When we kneel together, when we pray as a congregation, when we come together as, a, as a, either two people or a family or as a group like we are tonight, when we come before God, we can be assured and have confidence that we're entering right into the presence of God through prayer. He's, he's with us. We also have that confidence when we die, that when we pass away, we will be immediately in the presence of God. And so we have confidence that way. He's provided, it says in verse 20, a new and a living way. What was that way? It's different than what the world teaches and preaches as far as religion goes. This is not a work system. Every other system out there that I've read about or heard about or talked about, everybody's working in some form or fashion to try to please God with their life. Christianity is unique in that we don't work. We believe that Jesus did the work. It's a new and living way. Jesus shed his blood on the cross as a covering for our sin. He gave his body on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. And this, in verse 21, it says, allows us to enter through the veil. That veil before was never broken. It was never parted. But when, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to that veil? It rent in two from top to bottom. And that was the illustration given by God that we now have access to him through his son, in whom he is well pleased. So it was a new and a living way. And in verse 21, he's given us a great priest over the house of God. And who is this? It's his son. There's no longer a high priest that needs to go between you and me. We go directly to God through Christ. We don't need a human intercessor. We have only one mediator between God and man, and that's the man Christ Jesus, who now allows us direct access into, into his presence. And as a great priest, Jesus Christ prays for us, he intercedes for us, and he ministers to us. You who are heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And Jesus ministers to us every day. And since God has done all of this for us, not only as individuals, but as a group of redeemed people, it follows that we have some responsibilities together. And this is where we want to get to tonight. Not necessarily individual responsibilities, but corporate responsibilities, together responsibilities, things that we need to do as a group. And what are they? In verse, we're going to look at just three of them tonight, and they all begin with the word let us, or words let us. Verse 22, let us draw near. Verse 23, let us hold fast. And verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another. And so I'm going to put it this way. The first responsibility that we have together in verse 22 when he says, let us draw near, is to worship together. We're drawing near to God. And God expects us as a group, as a church, to come together for worship to draw near to him. This is one of our, our great callings as Christians. It's why we have church. It's why the Sunday morning service exists. It's why other services exist. It's so that when we get together, we can, as a group, come together and draw near to God. And we'll, we'll go through that. The second one is in verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith together. This has to do with 
with us confessing together with our mouths what we believe. It's coming together to edify one another, to go over the facts of our faith. It's why we preach. It's why we have Sunday morning Bible studies. It's why we have small groups. It's why we get together to talk about what we believe because that's part of our responsibility and that's part of the maintenance of our faith. I, I don't know how some people do it when they, they become a Christian and maybe had a bad experience at a church somewhere and then just abandon church altogether and just live by themselves, not ever rubbing shoulders or being encouraged by other believers or, or sitting under the preaching of God's word. This is clear. This is what we need to be doing, and this is why Fellowship Bible Church exists the way that it does. It's, it's really out of a, um, obedience to these commands. And then the last one in verse 24 is to let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good works. It's how to minister to each other. It's as we interact with each other in life, obviously we're going to have problems and issues and, and heartaches and hardships and distresses in our life, and God doesn't want us to go through those alone. And part of our responsibility as Christians together is to be together and, and encourage one another uh, through that. So let's look at those three tonight to worship together, to profess our faith together, and to minister together. First one is worship. Um, let me read the verse again in verse 22. Let us draw near with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. This idea of drawing near, as I said, is not just drawing near to one another. Paul, or whoever is writing the book of Hebrews, I think it was Paul, I say Paul, but whoever, whoever it was that wrote the book of Hebrews is calling for this group of believers to not just come together to draw near to themselves, but to draw near to God. And this really is the heart of our worship together. When we come together on Sunday mornings, you know, we have somebody up here who's leading and we're out there, but we're together in a group in the same room. And in our hearts and in our thoughts, we're led in a certain direction. And the lead, that direction ought to be always upward. It's to lead our thoughts and our hearts back to God so that we can commune with God together as a group. We do that by prayer. We do that with singing. We do that with, with uh, the words that are spoken both together and from up front. This is the heart of worship. We're to approach God directly. Let us draw near. It's not only a command, it's a privilege for us to do this, uh, that God even allows us to come into his presence and to access him in that, in that direct way. There are four thoughts in this verse that are attached to worshiping, and they're both reasons to worship and how we ought to worship and let's consider them. The first one in verse 22, let us draw near with what? A sincere heart. With sincerity. Always comes back to the heart, doesn't it? Every time. David was a man after God's own heart. Jesus Christ, as he taught on the Sermon on the Mount, said over and over, you've heard, by its, you've heard it said or taught by them of old, you shall not kill. But I say unto you, whoever hates his brother, it's a heart issue. 
Or you've heard it said by them of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say unto you, whoever looks on a woman to lust after her has committed adultery in his heart. And he's, he's after the heart of what's going on. And worship at its basis is us coming to God in sincerity with a true heart, with a sincere heart. What other kind of heart is there? Could, can we come with a non-sincere heart? Yes, we can, absolutely. And a lot of people do, I believe. Maybe our motives for coming to church are different than what they ought to be. Maybe people, and I don't want to say anything about us here, but people could come to church for any reason. They could come for social standing or for, uh, they want to be recognized or they want, you know, in, in this group, they want people to lift them up or I don't know. I don't know what our, our reasons for, for coming are. Why do we come? Why do we come? It's to meet God. It's to listen to his word. It's to learn from him. For our spirit to be connected to his spirit. And so if God expects this of the congregation, let us draw near with a sincere heart. This is what we're all supposed to do. What does that mean for me? What does it mean for you as an individual? Well, it means that my heart needs to be sincere, and I need to check my heart before I come to church, before I meet with you, that I'm coming with right motives and that my, my heart is clean um, and ready. No false pretenses or false reasons for being where I am. So sincerity is one major part of, of worship. He says also, in full assurance of faith. This simply means with full confidence. Flip back to chapter 3, verse 6. He uses this word a couple of times in a letter. He says, Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm to the end. So part of how God expects us to come to him is not only with our hearts clean and ready and and sincere, but also confidently that we actually believe the things that we're singing, that we actually believe the things that we're saying together, that we resonate with what's happening here at the front with Pastor Dan or whoever's leading in the sermon, that those things we connect with and we have confidence with um, I think this is kind of a true characteristic of any Christian. All the Christians that I have met, most, most of them have confidence in God. True faith has this characteristic of full confidence, but it can wane. Satan can cause us to not be confident in our, in our faith. I mentioned this morning about some people who are writing about their... Um, their discouragement in their own heart about thinking about hell and God's judgment on people. And so they're not confident. They're not confident in God's word. I know others are not confident in the historicity of the Bible or in the scientific um, in creation or in, in the flood or things like that. Are you confident? Are you confident in the word of God? If God expects us as a congregation to come together to draw near to him in confidence as a group, then what does that mean for me as an individual? I need to be confident in my God. I need to be confident in what I believe. There are things that can shake 
our confidence. But nothing can change what God has done. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. What shall separate us from the love of God? And so, sincerity and confidence. The third one is found also in verse 22, having our hearts sprinkled clean. Now, this was the work of the Spirit of God when we were first saved. When God saved you, Tony mentioned about his salvation and what his life was like before, and God cleaned him up. He did that for all of us. He took a heart that was black and made it white. He took a heart that was bent on sin and changed it so that it is now justified before God. And this doesn't necessarily deal with our sanctification and what I'm saying, but this was the work of God when we were first saved. It's also the work of the Spirit of God on a regular basis as we come to him in his word. Every time you open up the Bible, or every time the Bible is opened up in front of us, God, the Holy Spirit, is teaching us and cleaning us up. He continues to do this as a process through our life. If God expects us to approach him as a congregation, having had our hearts cleaned and cleansed, and that this is a process that's ongoing, then what's my responsibility? It's to keep my own heart clean, keep my life clean before him, so that when I come together with you, you're clean and I'm clean, and we can come before the, the Lord with clean hearts. This is the work of the Spirit, as I said but we need to allow him to do that. Having our hearts sprinkled clean. And then lastly in verse 22, and our bodies washed with pure water. This is metaphorical to a degree. It doesn't mean necessarily that you have to go take a shower before you come to church. But it does mean that our lives themselves, it's not referring to baptism either. I don't believe this is a baptismal passage. Um, but probably this is a reference to the ritual washing of the priests with water before they would enter the temple. You remember part of the tabernacle furniture on the outside, there was a laver of water, and the priest was to ceremonially, ceremonially wash himself before he would enter into the temple, which was representative of cleanness or lack of sin. And so the imagery is pretty clear. If the inside is clean, the outside should be clean as well. If our hearts have been cleansed by the Spirit, then our bodies will follow suit. It has to do with how we live, with the choices that we make, and whether sin is a part of our life or whether we push the sin out and make an effort to live in a clean way. So if God expects, again, the congregation to come with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, with their hearts cleansed by the blood of Christ and their bodies washed with pure water, how am I to come? Just, just like that. Those, those are my responsibilities. And so as I do these things in my own life, as I am concerned about righteousness in my life, as I'm concerned about the Spirit of God working in my life to change me, it's not just me. It affects you, doesn't it? And quite literally, it does affect each other. Because when one of us falls into sin, what happens? It affects us all. We're, 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 we're all affected by that. If we all came with an insincere heart, what would happen to the church? It would kind of crumble, fall apart. 
If we all came not caring about our bodies being clean or our lives being in order according to the Spirit of God, what would happen? We'd profess something and we wouldn't be living it. We'd all be hypocrites. And our worship would be vain. And so these are, these are pretty important responsibilities. But I guess the, the thing I want us to see tonight is the connection between the corporate responsibility to do this as a church and our ind individual responsibility to do it because we're part of that that corporation. So that's the first one, worship. The second one is in verse 23, where he says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. To hold fast means to hold on tightly, secure, or to keep possession of. Um, we live in a world where safety has gone crazy. We have to be safe in everything we do. We can't do anything without worrying about if there's a safety issue. Think about manufacturers making toys. Um, think about construction and all the codes that we have to follow to keep people safe from exploding pipes and collapsing roofs and walls that are too thin and whatever. We have to follow federal and state regulations. Parents are concerned about the safety of their children cars and seat belts, school officials concerned about the safety of their students. We just put into place a lockdown procedure at FCA this year to keep the kids safe in case of an intruder or in case that there's somebody on the property who is escaped from prison and is armed and dangerous and uh, or if a tanker spilled some chemical out in the parking lot. We have things to keep our, you know, um, we have steps in place to keep the students safe in these kinds of events. We're concerned about the security of our possessions. Senior trip, we were down in, in Myrtle Beach and had a theft. Somebody walked, we, we had a um, house that had a garage that was underneath the house, kind of on stilts, and so the whole thing was open, and guys brought their skateboards, and somebody walked in while we were home and just took them, just walked off with them. You know, so we're concerned about security of our possessions. But what is of greater value in your life than your salvation? Nothing. It's the highest possession that we have. Without it, we are nothing. Without Christ, we are nothing. Our relationship to Christ is everything. It brings value and meaning to everything in this life because we have hope for the next. And so he says in verse 23, let us hold fast. Let us hold tightly, keep secure, keep it safe. Our confession. The confession of our hope without wavering. Our confession is what we believe. You know, some, we, we may get tired of hearing certain things that are repeated over and over again at church. I used to think that when I first got saved because every time I heard the gospel, I said, you're saying that again? You're saying it again? I mean, we already went over this. Let's move on to something new, something, something better. But part of our responsibility as a group is to hold our statement of faith, what we believe, our confession, secure. And so we do repeat it. We do say things over and over again. The gospel is repeated over and over again. And I found in my life anyway, I actually love to hear the gospel now. You can tell it to me right now and I'll listen because I resonate with it. It means everything to me. The fact that my sin is forgiven, that I'm forgiven in Christ, that I have hope of eternal life, that God is with me present now, and I didn't have to work for that, 
Christ did it for me out of love. That, that whole concept is, you, you can repeat that over and over and over again if you want to me. I love it. I, I'll, I'll listen to it. But it's also our responsibility to do it. It's to hold it fast. What we believe about the person of God, that God is triune. He's the creator. He is spirit. He's not a grandfather sitting on a porch up in heaven in his rocking chair just waiting for this earth to get done with what it's going to do. He's involved in our lives. He is not the force. May the force be with you. He is not a turtle or an elephant. He is not a Buddha. God is real, and what we say about God matters. Hold fast the confession of our faith. There is only one true and living God. His name is Jehovah. He's the creator of the world, the sustainer of the earth, and the salvation or the savior of, of mankind. His son's name is Jesus Christ. He's coming back. These things are important, and we need to repeat them over and over again. The nature and work of Christ, the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word of God. We let these things go, and our faith goes out the window. The truth surrounding salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is what we teach and proclaim together. And holding it fast means that every time we meet, we talk about it. We say it. We reaffirm it with each other, to each other. So it means we need to know it and to know it well, to be willing to work on it and speak it out as we come together. So, once again, let's make the application. If this is true of the congregation, let us do this, then what is my responsibility in that? It's to participate in it and to know it and say it myself when we're together, not to just sit silently. He says also without wavering, he says uh, in verse 23, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. So be careful not to get hooked by ideas from the world. There's so many of them. There's a book written every day. And sometimes these books are good and sometimes they're not so good. Be careful. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that doesn't need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Don't get tossed by every wind of doctrine that comes around. If somebody says, it's new and I've got it right now, pretty much dismiss it. Because everything we believe is very old. It was revealed to us in this book, which is an old book, and there's nothing new. We, we believe in what God told us. So be careful not to get hooked into those ideas. And be careful not to get hooked into ideas even from the Christian community that are not firmly based in the Bible. And there's a lot of those, too. So we need to warn each other. To stand without wavering means to not lean. You're planted like a pole that's vertical. And so if you hear something and you lean, and then you hear something else, and then you lean another direction, you hear something else, you're wavering. That's the whole idea of wavering. He wants us to be planted. And if God wants the congregation to be planted and firm, what does he want from you and me? It's, it's the same thing. So study. Be in the word of God yourself and be ready to confess with everybody else the, the truths of God's word. Third one, and finally, verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to good deeds. I put it this way, to minister together. 
to stimulate one another to do something good or to love is really to minister. That's what Christ was doing when he was with people. He was stimulating them to obedience. He was calling them to repentance, and he was stimulating them to, to walk with God and to do what's right. To consider something, and he says that in verse 24, let us consider means to be attentive, to pay attention, to focus, to fix your eyes on something, to perceive it, to get it, to understand it. In this case, what are we to consider? What's the object of our considering in the verse? What's the next words after consider? Who? One another. So the object of our, of our consideration is each other. I am to consider how to stimulate you. That doesn't usually happen, does it? Honestly? Do we, do we think about how to help each other? I hope we do. Most of the time I think we think about ourselves, you know, our own problems and our own finances and our own uh, life and what's going on. But have other people on your mind. This is part of God's plan for us as a Christian is to be involved with each other's lives and to consider, to, to be attentive to one another, to fix our eyes on each other, to understand each other. And that word stimulate means to provoke or stir up. So how is my life going to provoke your life into doing something for God? How's that going to happen? How am I going to encourage you to, to be provoked or to be stimulated? The word provoke almost it could be translated irritate. When I was um, first being pursued by God in my life, we started going to Church of the Open Bible in Burlington, and there was a young man there who saw me come in and latched onto me, sort of. And every time he saw me, whether it was at morning service or evening service or youth group, which we were starting to go to, are you saved yet? Are you saved yet? Are you saved yet? And this went on every time. And finally, I just told him, yes, even though I wasn't, just to kind of get him off my back. He was provoking me. He was irritating me. He was like the, the little feeling in your nose when you're about to sneeze. It's like the itch in your foot that you just have to scratch or the rock in your shoe. That's what we should be to each other. We should be that itch. We should be that sneeze or that rock in each other's lives to provoke each other in to do what's right. So how can I be effective in causing someone else in the congregation to do that, um, to show genuine Christian love? He says in verse 24, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love. So how, what can I do in my life to help you show genuine Christian love in your life? Well, I can be an example of it. That's one way. So we can be examples for each other by showing each other how this ought to be played out. I can, have, I can tell you and encourage you verbally to show love, either by confrontation if you're not, or by exhortation to do it if you have opportunity to. Um, I can put myself in a situation where 
people are given the opportunity to show love toward me. Which is an interesting kind of flip on this. But this is what he wants us to think about. Think about, consider, how can I be stimulating in your life to help you show love? And then also for good works. How can I be a stimulating factor in your life to help you move in a direction where you're going to do something for God, good works? Same way, right? It can be an example. I can verbally encourage you. There's kind of a double result here. If I neglect you in my life, if I don't stimulate you to good works, it affects me negatively because you're not going to be doing those those good works and it affects everybody else negatively but if we're faithful in this then it produces fruit in my life and in your life and so it's way better to do it so let us consider how to stimulate one another to good love this is part of ministry to each other and then uh, the last two things We'll just touch on them in verse 25. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together. We're not to abandon this responsibility. Don't ever abandon coming together as a congregation to worship. This is what God has called us to do. Um, how often should we meet? doesn't say. What if we met every day? Wouldn't that be different? We'd all get sick of each other, really. Well, often enough that I'm to fulfill my biblical responsibility to you. I don't think that can happen on a Sunday morning. I think it's got to be more than that. That's why we started those small groups. And, uh, and it's, those are working to a great degree. Am I involved enough in your life that I know what's happening in your life? Can I effectively pray for you? Do I know you well enough that I know how to pray? And what's going on in your life? Or do you know me well enough that you can pray for me? Um, Am I able to serve you by exercising my spiritual gifts? If I am, then we're, we're fulfilling this. We're not forsaking the assembling together of ourselves. And then lastly, he says, encouraging one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, the word encourage is the idea to come alongside, put your arm around somebody, to help them, um, to talk to them, to, to strengthen them, uh, to be a support for them. And this really should be happening all the time in the church. So, what are my responsibilities, according to this passage, as an individual Christian to the, to the church that God has placed me in? In regards to worship, I need to make sure that my heart's sincere, that my faith is confident, that my, my heart is clean, and that my life is clean. And as, I, as we come together in that regard, the whole group can, can worship God the way that he wants us to. In regards to our confession, I need to hold fast to my theology, to what I believe about God, to be careful not to let rogue ideas enter into my head and change my theology to something else. I need to remain biblical, to rightly divide the word of truth, to rest in the trustworthiness of God. And as I do that and you do that together, we come together and we we profess and confess what we believe again and again and again, and our confidence will grow. In regards to ministry, it's my responsibility to stimulate you to love God and to love people. It's my responsibility to stimulate you to good works, to meet regularly enough with you that I know you so that I can pray for you, 
and encourage you. That's my responsibility. That's your responsibility as an individual as we come to the church. So how are we doing? Pretty good. A, B, C, D, E, F. Satisfactory? Unsatisfactory? Needs improvement? How would you grade us? That's something to think about. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Father, I do thank you for your word and, and thank you for the fact that as we meet together that you do teach us and will teach us and continue to help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of um, who you are and what you would have us do. And as a church, Lord, I do pray that you would help us to be mindful of these things that you've written so that as we come together to worship and to preach and make confession of what we believe and encourage one another, that we'd be responsible ourselves in our own individual lives to be sure that our part in this is, is taking place. Thank you, Father, for the night, and pray that as we continue to fellowship together that you'd be with us, go before us, and uh, thank you for the food we're about to partake of. In Jesus' name, amen.